Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, thinking about immigration, and immigration, of course, Richard, is a topic that's been very much in the news for the past, I don't know, year or so, uh, certainly the length of the Donald Trump presidential campaign. And now that we've got a president-elect Donald Trump, something we're going to be talking about for a while longer, it's also the subject of your most recent column for Defining Ideas. I, I want to start this conversation with you on sort of um, first principles, philosophical grounds, because a lot of your uh, fellow libertarians are are fond of making an argument um, that posits a sort of equivalence between the, the free movement of goods, free trade, and the free movement of people. And, and a lot of libertarians, even though some people use the term open borders as an epithet, a lot of libertarians actually self-identify that way and see no principled reason why people shouldn't be allowed to move freely between countries basically at will. Is that, as a classical liberal, Richard, your position on the immigration issue? No, I think that position turns out to be suicidal. And at this particular point, I think it's important to understand the difference between the hardline anarcho-libertarian, which is deeply suspicious of all government, and the classical liberal who believes in limited government designed to protect person and property and personal liberties and the like. If you think that the world is one which doesn't need to have a government, then when you let people come into your particular country, uh, what happens is they don't have to participate by paying taxes. They don't receive public education. Um, They don't vote in any kind of elections because nothing is going on. And so if you're in a state of nature without a government and people move, it's relatively uneventful. But now suppose what you do is you say, you know what, we do have to provide public goods. We do need a defense situation. We do need a set of courts. We do have to tax. And if you try to run that kind of a system with complete open borders, it turns out that it's essentially non-sustainable. You could imagine even in the olden days, it took a long time to get here and people were called out. But the American position wasn't one of free immigration back in the 1890s. It was you were allowed to come. You went through medical inspections. If you flunked, then you were sent back home at the expense of the uh, steamship company that brought you. Otherwise, you were allowed in. But everybody understood that the government could always shut down the spigot any time that it wanted to do so if it found that thing got, things got out of balance. So imagine we had open borders today and all of a sudden 100 million Chinese people decide that working under Beijing is intolerable and they land in San Francisco. Uh, where do you feed them? Where do you house them? Where do you educate them? Where do you register them? How do you tax them? Do you provide them with social security? You can't even under a system of limited government take in everybody because it's not that you just influence market transactions, which would be fine. It's you influence collective deliberation through the political process, and that turns out to be much more fragile. And so every nation everywhere has always taken the opposite position, uh, that essentially you have to give some kind of clear justification uh, for letting somebody in rather than a justification for keeping them out. And in fact, the rule in every country in the world is you can keep people out for good reason, bad reason, no reason at all. What that means is any decision to keep people out by the political branches is final and nobody but nobody has a right to go into court in order to challenge that kind of decision. Now, 
for somebody who's a natural lawyer, there's tension from this position because if we say you shall not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law and you're telling these immigrants that they can't come in, uh, well, clearly there's a tension. And so what you have to do is to recalibrate your personal liberties and that's been done traditionally by putting in a strong territorial component which says that if you're here, you get these kinds of protections but if you're there, you turn out not to get them. This is not a happy solution. Clearly, much of immigration policy is largely indefensible, so you don't want to treat this as a first best solution, but the alternative of inundation is sufficiently dramatic that it's the typical libertarian position. If nobody in the world has ever tried it, then it's the optimal solution. And I'm not that kind of libertarian. I'm a little bit more pragmatic in what I say and do. One of the points that you really push home in this article is that this issue is also a lot more complex than is generally acknowledged, at least by sort of politicians and the pundit class. And the two variables that you cite there are sort of the variety of different types of immigrants under different sets of circumstances, and two, just the sheer complexity of the law. Explain for our listeners a little bit what you mean by that. Well, when you start talking about immigrants and you don't know much about the subject, you assume that everybody falls into one type. Either that people come over the border um, illegally, or it turns out that people come in on H-1 visas, or it turns out that they're people who claim refugee status coming into the United States, or they are stateless people that are brought here against their will, or they're prisoners of war who are housed in the United States and so forth. And it turns out that you can't have a one-size-fit-all solution for every kind of immigrant that you have in the United States. So there's a heterogeneity of who the people are. Then when people get here, they take very divergent paths. Some of them become naturalized citizens after a good deal of work. Some of them become resident aliens. Um, some of them, in effect, just sort of remain illegals under one circumstance or another. Uh, there are rules which determine what kind of grounds you need to have in order to remove what kinds of people from this country. Uh, if you're a legal resident alien, generally speaking, you can only be deported if you've committed some kind of a crime. If you're somebody who came in illegally, then it turns out that you can be deported without proof of criminality. But somebody has to collect these people somebody has to discover their record, somebody has to collect their papers and so forth. So at NYU about uh, two, 10 days ago, they ran an immigration clinic. And what I did is I picked up the sheet in which they were explaining the various kinds of issues with the various kinds of people uh, that were going on. And I looked at this thing and I realized that I couldn't figure out what was going on. And they had in the room some 600 lawyers and immigration workers being desperately told how to understand this and then how to transfer this information to their various clients, some of whom don't speak English, some of whom here under very different circumstances and so forth. Um, you're talking about 11 million people. I'm not going to say that every case is distinct and unique, uh, but the variation that you have is infinite. And if you're going to sort of announce, as Donald Trump does in a careless mode, that I'm going to only get rid of two or three million people in the next year or two, it means if you take it at his particular numbers, you're having to get rid from this country several thousand people a day and you have to do it seven days a week and you have to do it for two or three years. It's just not possible to do this because once people do come into this country and they have been here, then it's not a question of manning the borders. Now there are elaborate statutes and some perfectly respectable rules which say that the due process guarantees do apply because you're not dealing with the extraterritorial people trying to come in. You're dealing with people who are already here. And so 
this field is a full-time academic specialty. Obama has done so many inconsistent things, including stepping up the rate of deportation. And all that Donald Trump has to do is to be quiet about this and saying, we see what the current policy is. We will not change it until we have some very good reason to do so. You would get rid of a huge amount of anxiety and you would not have to worry about all the borders coming tumbling down so that the United States would be overrun by alien people intent upon its destruction. There's just so many other better ways to do it than was done by the uh, president-elect. One of the centerpieces of the campaign for now President-elect Trump was the idea of building a border wall with Mexico. He's hedged on that a little since the election, said it, you know, in some places it may be uh, it may be a fence instead of a wall. But for the most part, it sounds like the goal remains intact. Uh, is that a worthy policy objective, Richard? Well, I mean, if you have to understand what's going on on the Mexican border. I actually went back and I checked the numbers. And if he were talking seven or eight years ago, there was when there was a net three or 400,000 immigrants coming across the border into the United States every year, you can see, well, maybe you want to try to keep them out, although the logistical problem here would be enormous. But at this particular point, uh, the balance of immigration in and out of Mexico and the United States is about even. Uh, so it's not as though the problem is getting worse. If anything, it's probably getting a little bit better. And there are a thousand other ways in which you could reduce the immigrant pressure. If it turns out that what you do, for example, is engage in a free trade regime, try to sell things to Mexico, improve the economy down there, at that point many people from Mexico will start to go home, others will be reluctant to come here, and the problem will kind of take care of itself. Not perfectly, but partially. And I constantly try to stress whenever I talk about this subject, if you have free trade, people can sell goods into the United States. They don't have to try to cross the Rio Grande in order to get themselves a job. They can do it at home. So free trade will always ease the immigration policy. And so the president is doubly wrong on these two things. He's pretty sound on domestic policy, as far as I can tell, with his major massive deregulation. It's the same philosophy that should govern situations at the borders. And the real big question mark about his presidency is will he learn how to change course so that he is as shall we say, pro-market friendly on trade as he is, internationally as he is domestically, at which point the, in, the immigration problem will start to recede and we will be a much more prosperous and much less divisive nation if we do this. So you told us a minute ago about some of the logistical challenges that would come with deportations on the scale that Trump's been talking about. In terms of the numbers he himself has put out, which the two to three million number comes from Trump himself. What we haven't talked about specifically is the group that he says constitutes that two to three million. Some people dispute this, but he's getting to that number by what he says is the sum total of people like drug dealers, gang members, criminals. I'm presuming, Richard, that you would you would be fine with deportations of folks like that. Could you give us sort of the the hierarchy? Who are the priorities as far as people you actually do want to get out of the country? Well, I mean, the ones that you either want to get out of the company or put into jail, I'm not sure which, are people who commit violent offenses of one kind or another. Uh, Drug dealers are dangerous, but murderers are more dangerous. But if you actually start looking at the immigrant population, knowing that deportation is a sanction that can be used against them, their participation rates with respect to violent crimes are lower than that of many domestic groups. I keep referring to people that if 
you're trying to figure out what the source of unrest has been with respect to the criminal system today, it all stems out of the uh, very wildly divergent views on the police between folks like Black Lives Matter and various defenders of the police forces. This is all domestic issues, largely along racial lines, in which immigrants play virtually no role whatsoever in it. So if you want to deal with the criminal problem inside the United States, what you have to do is to get a coherent policy for dealing with domestic violence, with domestic protests, and everything else. And the immigrant piece is very, very small on that. So that's the group that you'd want to target. Well, do you want to send them over the border? Do you want to put them into jail? It's not that obvious to me. You send them over the border, they're not going to love you in Mexico, right? Because you're sending back a murderer who may kill there. If you send them over the border, they may sneak back into this country again and kill somebody else. If you put them into jail, at least you know where they are. And maybe it turns out you can do some good by incapacitation and by better deterrence than deportation. If you look at the other things, a drug deal is a very serious business. Uh, But what about being a drug user? Or what if you define a drug dealer as anybody who sells drugs to somebody else and it turns out some guy buys a joint and then he sells two parts of it to two of his friends? Does he become a dealer? What happens is every term that you know in ordinary English becomes essentially contested and unclear when you have to set it up against a thousand different cases, 999 of which you don't understand. Now, this doesn't mean that the legal system breaks down because the big cases of the dealers are the one that you normally want to get. But if you're trying to go after the small part, then small fry, then you're basically digging into the part of the population which is most difficult to understand. Then there are going to be the questions, well, how do you know that I'm a drug dealer? What's the definition? Do you want to start litigating all of these issues inside the either the immigration system or the criminal system? And so one of the things I did last week is I happened to read quite by chance um, uh, the oral argument in a case called Jennings against Rodriguez, where in the Ninth Circuit they said, you keep people in for deportation for six months or more and you don't do anything about it, you've got to release them. Well, maybe that ruling will be affirmed, maybe it will be denied but you have to understand that if you try to quadruple the population in your jails and you don't change the infrastructure and the budgets and the procedures it's going to be completely chaotic and so the best thing to do is to sort of tamp down on the current policies. This is not an area in which you want to deviate strongly from the Obama practices you get rid of the executive order giving wholesale exemptions because I don't think Trump wants that and that's probably something perfectly within his rights non-controversial but this is the kind of statement when you make it you say why is this man doing this when there's so many things that he can do which would be much better for everybody in the United States immigrant and non-immigrant alike so let me close on this question for you sort of downstream from the core question of immigration is the question of sanctuary cities these jurisdictions have that have declared that they're they're not going to cooperate with the federal government going after people who are here illegally donald trump's talked a fair bit about cracking down on those localities uh, several of them los angeles chicago new york have made a big show since donald trump was elected of the fact that they're if anything going to be even more defiant uh, just as a legal matter, Richard, w- where are the limits of the power on each side? What kind of constraints are there on the federal government to crack down? What kind of constraints are there on these cities to resist? 
well, this is the whole show. This is just part of the endless <laughs> complexity associated with the sorts of issues that we have. Let's just start with at least some of the basis. You could go back to the 40s, and there's always the question, who dominates the question of what you do with aliens, legal or illegal, inside the United States? And this, of course, became extremely important when you were dealing with the Japanese immigrants and the, inca- and the incarceration and the concentration camps, the internment camps that we put them there. And it was decided, as it is in every wartime, that the federal government has absolutely the whip hand on this and the states can't stand in their way. So that's the first principle. Uh, The second principle turns out to be that the federal government is in general not entitled to commandeer the states in order to do its particular bidding. Uh, So the governors and the mayors would be perfectly within their rights, it appears, although God knows what will happen if it gets litigated, to say, you want to do it, you go ahead and do it. We don't have to help you and you can't make us. At which point you're going to see the following question. The government says, we have a lot of money, we give a lot of money to the cities, we give a lot of money to the states, and if you don't give us the the cooperation we need, we're not going to give you the grants that you need to run your welfare system, your Medicaid program, or anything else. And the irony is, of course, the past master at doing this is the Obama administration, because the threat that they had with all of their civil rights enforcement mechanism was quite simply as follows. Either you put together the tribunals under the terms that we instruct you to do so, or you're not going to get your money for your medical school, or for your city, or for your state, and so forth. So the question of whether or not you could withhold the money is going to be a contest one under which the federal government would probably win. But the political pressures would be just enormous. Can Donald Trump really says, you know what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to give you any aid whatsoever because you won't cooperate with me on this thing. And then your Medicaid program starts to clap, your Medicare program starts to track, your social security system starts to fall apart. It's just a terribly high price to pay for these things. And they're going to say, Mr. Trump, you are not going to pull the nuclear option on us, so we're going to stick our tongue out at you and tell you to drop debt. Well, then the next thing is, well, I can't resist you and I don't have to cooperate with you, but can I make your life more difficult? Can I tip off people that the feds are about to come? Or is that an obstruction of justice or aiding and abetting? Well, you have to prove it and then you have to go into this area and figure out what the law is going to be. And nobody's going to be particularly happy about trying to do that. Uh, the other thing is, if the states do not cooperate, if the cities do not cooperate with the federal government, the usual funnel into the federal system, which is turning over people who've been arrested for serious offense starts to shut down. So not only are they going to have to do this over fierce political opposition, but they're going to get rid of their major allies. So I just don't believe that you can do all of this stuff. Um, what I did is after listening to the argument in the um, Rodriguez and Jennings case, I said to myself, the current effort for these judges to make up a constitutional rule out of whole cloth, uh, the statutes are hopelessly inconvenient. What you really need is for somebody to sit down and to develop a responsible set of procedures. And the thing I worry about most is that there are very few people in the middle who have got real technical expertise on the one side and no particular axe to grind on the other. That is, most people in this immigration debate are just way off on one end or the other. So in my column, there's some people saying, you don't understand. Immigrants 
aliens are legal people. Illegal aliens are invaders and criminals. And, you know, if that's your particular attitude to somebody who's, you know, been in this country for 20 years, has a job, joins a church, is civically responsible, be my guest. But it's really tough to maintain that. And it turns out that I will just quote with a story that was told to me. I think it was by Philip Bobbitt, a very distinguished professor at Columbia. And this is when he was in Texas. This is what he said. All the people in the abstract were strongly in favor of rules keeping illegal immigrants from coming into the country. But if you told them that one of their friends would have to go, who was an illegal alien, they were horrified. Uh, Because the close ties in these cases are really very strong. And I do not believe for one second that when Rahm Emanuel or Bill de Blasio or Gary Garcetti, whatever his name is, when they start screaming at the top of their lungs, I think they're doing it because they actually mean it. And, you know, I'm not normally regarded as a progressive, but if you ripped apart the fabric of my city by having massive federal raids, if you meant that every child who goes to school in the morning is going to be petrified so that you can't teach them, if every kid who is deported has three American citizens or heartbroken, uh, it just comes at too high a price. And what you have to do is to understand the inevitable. And the guy who's been most thoughtful on this and who should probably put in charge of it is Jeb Bush, who's trying to figure out how you work responsible transition. And boy, do I wish that Mr. Trump would just ease down, go ahead full scale with your deregulation program at home and keep this thing pretty much in the status quo ante, modest changes, not huge convulsive proposals. Even the suggestions make the thing almost intolerable for large numbers of people living in the United States, alien and non-alien alike. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.